that moment when the fourth quarter began and everybody pulled out their mm-hmm. cell phones with the what was then a very new gimmick of turning on your flashlights and it became obvious that the stadium was at least 40% Georgia fans, that was awe-inspiring. Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever had a better moment at a game than that. Hey there, my name is Scott Duvall, and welcome back to the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. This is episode 186, and we're serving up another Spotlight Series show for you today. Our co-host, Will Leach, brings you a fascinating interview with lifelong Georgia Bulldogs fan, Ed Kilgore, who is a political columnist for New York Magazine's News and Politics blog, The Daily Intelligencer. Earlier in his career, Ed was communications director for U.S. Senator Sam Nunn and a speechwriter and federal and state liaison for three Georgia governors. Mr. Kilgore is a University of Georgia School of Law graduate, and in this episode shares his memories and unique stories of the early years of Vince Dooley and Larry Munson back in the late 60s and early 70s. A current California resident, he also provides a few anecdotes on his long road trips to Notre Dame and the national championship game during the Dogs' resurgence in 2017. So sit back and enjoy the interview. Here's Will to get it started. All right, I'm Will. This is part of our Spotlight series. I hope you're enjoying all the stuff we got ready for you here to start the season. We had Seth Emerson, uh, the great athletic beat reporter. Uh, we've had Wes Blankenship from the local Atlanta News. I think uh, we've got people all over the place for crying out loud. We've got Amanda Mull, who writes for The Atlantic. She's coming on with Tony here pretty soon, fellow uh, Georgia person. But today, very exciting. My colleague, though we've never actually met, uh, though I guess in, the, in today's virtual journalistic world, whomever meets anyone, I have editors that I've worked with for years that I've never actually looked at and may, in fact, be uh, fictional. So I'm here today with my colleague, Ed Kilgore. He writes about politics very regularly for New York Magazine. I write about sports less regularly for New York Magazine, but still at least weekly. Uh, but Ed is a uh, is an excellent writer, a very smart political mind, but more important and more apt for our podcast, a, what's the term? Is it a damn good dog or is it a darn good dog? Can you, can you curse? Ed, help me out. I never know oh, if I'm saying that right. On podcasts, you can definitely curse, or you can at least say "damn." Okay, so is the is the actual word "damn good dog"? Because it feels, you know, it feels like if I'm uh, around my kids. Actually, when I'm around Georgia drivers, I say so much worse when I'm around my children. So. I think I can curse. Depends on what's happening in the game. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, so, hey, so thanks for coming on. So so you are uh, – uh, let's give your story a little bit. You are a Georgia law grad, correct? Yeah, uh, that's that's one of my old guy anecdotes. I'm so old that uh, I went to Emory rather than Georgia undergrad because it was less expensive, which is, <laughs> is true. It's hard to believe. Uh, but I eventually made my way to Athens uh, and, and graduated from the Lumpkin School of Law. But I was a Georgia football fan from as long as I can remember. So where'd you grow up? Uh, my father was in retail sales uh, for the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. So it was basically one textile town after another. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like being an Army bread, except you'd never really went anywhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you and, could, and you could grow your hair long without it being a huge problem. I exactly. Well, you were always a new kid. But yeah. uh right. You know, but it was mostly in Georgia. I spent. I was born actually in Columbia, South Carolina, because my father was in the army, and was in Tennessee briefly. But you know, until I was, until much later in my life, I was pretty much always a, a Georgia boy. 
Everybody has their formative time where they became a fan of a sports team. For me, the Cardinals is when they had Ozzie Smith and Willie McGee and Vince Coleman, and like that was that was that was what made me fall in love with the Cardinals and fall in love with baseball. What made you fall in love with uh, with Georgia football? What's kind of your first really kind of obsessive uh, Georgia football or Georgia sports memory? Well, I, I have sort of two answers to that. The first one is I knew from a very early age that I wasn't going to be a hell of an engineer because I couldn't draw a straight line with a ruler uh, and was pretty bad at uh, Tinker Toys. So the flagship university that always attracted me was University of Georgia. The game I really remember first is a very famous one, uh, the 1965 Georgia-Alabama game, uh, which I watched uh, on a TV in the showroom of the Goodyear store my father managed in LaGrange, Georgia at the time. That was the first signature Vince Dooley win. Uh, and, and the big play that everybody remembers was a flea flicker play. I said that right, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In which um, a Georgia receiver, who was probably on a knee at the time, but who cares, a lateral to Bob Taylor, who was from LaGrange, and uh, we got the winning touchdown. And, and again, that was when Vince Dooley started becoming an icon to Georgia fans. By the way, that was a year before – Larry Munson arrived to do uh, Georgia play-by-play. The, the broadcaster back then was a fellow named Ed Thelenius, who was a local uh, sports guy uh, for an Atlanta TV station. So, uh, so I'm I'm always curious about this because you know I always find when I'll, this is a sidetrack thing. Whenever there's a new broadcaster for a team, everybody always immediately hates them, <laughs> and then eventually just gets used to them, and eventually they do it long enough that they're beloved. Uh, did people like Larry Munson when he first got there? Or were they like, who's this new guy? Well, I, we didn't have, um, you know, football blogs and comment threads and that right. sort of thing. I mean, I, I liked him right away. Uh, I, I think he became popular right away. And as you, I'm sure you know, even though you're a fairly recent mm. addition to the Bulldog Nation, Munson uh, really did sort of infect how Georgia fans view the game. There's a sort of inherent paranoia, uh, <laughs> pessimism that Georgia fans always exhibit that, some even call Munsoning, and, and that's, that's certainly deeply in, in, inbred into my own soul. I've missed two of the really most important games in Georgia football history because I assumed we were going to lose. <laughs> but you just didn't watch them at all? Well, I, actually, I'll go ahead and mention the two examples. Please do, please do. The greatest Georgia comeback in, uh, in, in program history was, I believe it was 1978, when Tech was playing, or Georgia was playing Tech in Athens, I was at the game uh, and left at halftime because Tech was just beating the crap out of us. And walked up towards the law library, which is quite a hike up a hill up on North Campus. And there were all these unearthly roars going on as I headed up the hill. I wonder what was happening. And it, it turns out Georgia came back 128-27, and I missed all the exciting stuff. Uh, even more poignantly, the 1980 Georgia-Florida game, uh, which I was watching at Manuel's Tavern. It was a, you know, iconic watering hole in Atlanta. And when Georgia got the ball late, late in the fourth quarter on the nine or ten yard line, whatever it was, I decided to go to the bathroom because I just couldn't stand watching the fumble or the interception we were about to have. And of course, that turned into the famous Lindsey Scott play uh, that was the most important point on the road to a, to Georgia's one national championship. So I, I have a habit of missing things. 
Okay, so I want to get because I I I want to spend as much time as we possibly can talking old Georgia stuff because you know Tony and Scott have been obviously fans for a lot longer than me, and I feel like I'm learning it all. Like my my first real hardcore Georgia memory, uh, sports uh, football memory, uh, is being at my apartment in New York, and uh, I mean we watched Georgia games, but to me the pr- the more the primal visceral understanding of what it meant to be a Georgia football fan was we were on the 13th floor to so the 22nd floor of uh, our apartment building in Brooklyn, and uh, uh, when the play happened in the 2012 SEC Championship game, my wife oh. almost threw an office chair through the window, 22 stories down, <laughs> through uh, to onto unsuspecting uh, Brooklynites below. So uh, I, I I never connected that to Munsoning before, but I suppose that makes a certain amount of sense. But we want to go back through through some of those. Uh, but I want to get some of your bona fides uh, as like just kind of tell us like who you are. Like like you obviously you write about politics, but you've been involved with politics for for forever, right? Both in Georgia and nationally. Well, not quite forever, but close to it. Yeah, okay, I've sorry. sort of had three three careers. First, I was a a staffer to three governors, a senator, and a couple of state agencies. So I did political, uh, federal, state relations work and speech writing. You know, then I went up the yellow brick road to Washington for a while and worked at a think tank and a political organization. And then, at the worst possible time in human history, I migrated over into journalism. Uh, late in the day when everything was falling apart <laughs> and became a, writer, a full-time writer. So this is sort of my third of three careers. But, yeah, my, my first career with elected officials was purely in Georgia, uh, you know, basically right out of law school. I never really wanted to practice law. And you worked for, you worked for Sam Nunn, correct? Sure did. I was his communications director for, I guess, about three years. And I wrote speeches for him long after that. Also, the famous governor I worked for was Zell Miller, <laughs> and I can tell you stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suspect. I suspect there's some uh, months thing going on there as well. Um, so when you, uh, I'm curious about this, and I want to ask you this. And I want to talk. I have some politics questions for you, but I really want to kind of obsess, uh, kind of boring on this idea of Munsoning because you know, like, Munsoning is before my time. But I definitely understand that negativity of, of Georgia football fans. And it's weird. I see this not just with Georgia, but kind of all around Atlanta sports and kind of sports in the area. But I think it's original place is Georgia football, which is this idea that it's this odd combination of ultimately we are going to lose and this is not going to go well. But when things are going great, uh, the world is terrible for not appreciating how incredible that we are. <laughs> it's this weird yeah. combination of those two things that I find very amusing. And I'm curious, like uh, my theory is that, like, for example, uh, if the I, I was sitting next to Terrence Moore, the uh, old Atlanta Journal-Constitution columnist, uh, during the Super Bowl where the, when the Falcons were up, uh, what was the score? Uh, 28-3. Yeah, 28-3, I think is what it was. And I leaned over to him. I said, wow, this is going to be am- This is quite amazing. And he's like, you just wait. <laughs> and he knew and he all knew. And his theory, and I, I've heard this from other people, is this is not, this whole kind of Atlanta and Georgia uh, vibe that it's not going to work out, is not... It's the Loserville myth. The Loserville myth, yes. But his theory, and many others, is that it's actually based in Georgia football, and that like that fatalism is really, that's the sport that all told, most people are most passionate about, and I think everything, everyone's almost learned to be a sports fan from being a Georgia uh, football fan. Do you, do you think there's any validity to that, uh, to that theorem? Uh, it, it maybe and some of this is generational um i mean when vince dooley was the coach georgia was actually known as a as a team that did really well in the fourth quarter and yeah there was this munsoning sort of pessimism but it 
It really wasn't based that much in reality. I mean, Georgia wasn't dominant at any point, but uh, you know, you you had a general feeling that if you were ahead in the fourth quarter, you're probably going to win. I, I remember going watching a Georgia Florida game, believe it or not, with a friend of mine who was a Florida grad. This would have been the early '80s, and. The fourth quarter started, was about to start. Georgia had the ball. I think we had like a three-point lead. My friend got up and cut off the TV. I said, don't you want to watch the fourth quarter? And he said, I'm, I've been watching this fourth quarter for 15 years. And sure enough, Georgia got the ball, did one of these patented, you know, eight-minute, three-yard to cloud of dust drives that Georgia did in the Dooley era and won. And so it used to be Florida fans that had this sense of inevitable failure ahead of them. I think everything turned around, though, when um, a fellow named Ray Goff became the coach, uh, head coach, uh, Dooley's successor at Georgia, and we had seven years of just horrible futility. And, in fact, the Georgia-Florida series was the symbol of that, and, and Steve Spurrier, who was the Florida coach, just mocked poor old Ray Goff mercilessly for that entire era. So that, I think that's when Munsoning turned into something much more real. Yeah, yeah, and, and toxic. Yeah, I think that's the famous story, right? Whenever I talk about the the Loserville kind of idea, I kind of I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's the official name for it, but I'm using it. <laughs> the uh, the Loserville idea uh, is that even the idea the one the one Atlanta team that won a championship were the Braves, and they did it the exact same day that uh, Spurrier put 55 on Georgia uh, between the hedges. <laughs> <laughs> so like, of course, of course, that would be the way that it would happen. Uh, I am still of the Belief that Atlanta United's title should count for something, yeah. but but uh, but I think I, mo- I mostly get uh, well. You just got here when I say that to people, so I understand. Um, I'm curious though. Like it's fun for me to track the way coaching works because golf, I think, is always uh, is considered kind of like the, the I guess the four letter word uh, uh, and kind of when this all kind of transition. I'm curious though. Before that, where were you watching when they won the championship uh, in in, uh, in in eighty or eighty eighty yeah eighty eighty one? Sorry, where were you watching when they when they won that championship or were you watching? I was actually I was actually at a, a hotel bar in Atlanta I had moved to Atlanta and started my professional career there you know it was in a very crowded room with a bunch of TVs and I think I ate a meal and drank a beer and watched uh the whole show by myself as a matter of fact so it was kind of I was probably afraid uh, to share the experience with anyone else because uh, I figured we would lose but no, I, that that's when that's where I was in that particular moment. Uh, the 2012 game, which is the closest, well, yeah, well, <laughs> two other times come close to a national championship. 2012, I was at home in California, uh, and of course, none of my neighbors, anybody I knew, had any idea why I was in agony for the next week or two. <laughs> and then the national championship game, most recently against Alabama two years ago, I was in the stadium and we could talk about that if you want to that was one of the worst experiences of my life yeah I want to get into that because I was also there and uh, I don't I definitely want to talk about that but I want to get into uh, uh, track a little bit more when we talk uh, to me one of the the great pivot moments in Georgia football and we'll see how it all ends up is the end of the Rick era right you know I was here when that happened the weirdness of Rick being fired you know McGarity sitting next to him and acting like we're thankful for all the time that he spent here while Rick because he's Rick is like quietly just like mm-hmm, I am not upset at all I'm just being a very good person and meanwhile uh, you can almost see him uh, uh, seething uh, as much as Mark Rick could seethe uh, it was a very awkward weird kind of thing but more to the point the end of Rick 
and the yeah. start of the Kirby Smart era felt like, to me, as someone who'd only been here for a few years, and, and I think I, I still kind of stand behind it now, felt like a shift in uh, what Georgia football was about, which is to say, uh, one of the things I was very charmed about Georgia football when I first got to Athens was the idea, for better or worse, and there's a certain smugness in this, I can say this as a St. Louis Cardinals fan, of the idea that, like, sure, Auburn will do whatever it can to win, and Alabama will do whatever it can to win. But here at Georgia, we have the Georgia way. Things are different here. We we have a certain code that we will uh, – a certain class that we won't be a part of. Now, I'm not saying they've suddenly become classless jerks when Kirby Smart has, has gotten here, but certainly there is a, a, a higher emphasis on winning that championship, on becoming like Alabama. And my theory for this has always been because – not just because Georgia's gone so long without a title, but they've watched Florida win one and Tennessee win one and Auburn win one and even Georgia Tech win one in the time that since, since they they've won one. What did you think when they when the Ricked to Kirby move happened? Did it feel like you're Georgia? Were you happy about it? What what was kind of your take? Well, I, I had always been on Team Ricked, and you know, for the last number of years of his era. Uh, I would say 80% of Georgia fans were pro-rig, 20% were noisily anti-rig and wanted him fired. But it was something very distinct that happened the year he was fired that I think flipped a lot of us, myself included, into the this has got to end uh, ranks. And that was his hiring of, of Schottenheimer as offensive coordinator. It was widely panned at the time as a disaster in the making. Everybody I know predicted it was not going to work out. Uh, it did not work out. It was a disaster. Uh, it cost us a couple of key games and some real embarrassments. And it was sort of the ultimate sort of validation of those who said that Rick had let the game pass him by. And people have forgotten that he at one point was considered a great offensive uh, innovator. So when he hired this schmo, uh, you know, who had done rather poorly in the pro ranks to run the Georgia offense that Mike Bobo had run very successfully for a long time, uh, it, it really did feel like something needed to change. So that's, I was not really upset when Rick was finally fired, but to tell you the truth, I was shocked. He felt so entrenched here uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, he is one of the greatest people on the planet. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. but I, I don't, I don't think there was a widespread feeling in the fan base that we've got to be just like Alabama now, sort of the way Auburn always is. Mm hmm. I'd be wrong about that, but I didn't care. I, to this day, it's okay with me if uh, you know our current level of success is fine with me. If we never win another national championship, but I know a lot of fans <laughs> yeah. agree with that. But I, but I don't think we're. I don't. I don't think this new Alabama thing is is quite as deep a motive for Rick leaving as some think. He just. He really just had gotten to the point to where he was making too many mistakes and they were too visible. That's an interesting perspective on that because, you know, I like that idea because I've always been of the notion that, like, if your team wins 10 or 11 or 12 games a year and you never win a title, well, there's are, those are 12 days a year that you're happy that you would otherwise be sad. And so, therefore, it is a net positive in your life. And to be fair, I'm coming this as a fan of the University of Illinois football team who, if they get four wins, it's a step hey, we forward. Remember, we remember Butkus. Yeah, remember Butkus and uh, and uh, like we had like honestly two of the five most famous college football players of all time, Dick Butkus and Red Grange, yeah. went to Illinois. So I will take it. Uh, that's it. Nothing else happened after that at all. But anyway, and that was your I, Illinois. I think, if, I think if Georgia ever gets the monkey off its back by winning one 
national championship, maybe the fan base will calm down and we could be perfectly happy with, you know, just being in the picture every year. I hope so. Yeah. Ask, ask Red Sox fans about that. That did not, <laughs> that did not calm them down uh, very much. And it's certainly, and to me, like being here, it does feel like there's been an elevation of like the, the, the fact is, is we've, we're, we've discussed this a little bit on the, on the other shows. If Georgia wins, the, like, the, the now minimum is Georgia has to make the SEC championship game. Otherwise, the season is a disaster. And it was only two years ago that I was at the SEC championship game when they beat Auburn, and we're going to get into that season just, just in a second, is – it was uh, people were elated that they were actually there because it had been a few years and it had been so kind of frustrating and all these years they should have made it and the SEC East was down and they finally made it and to think that it's only been essentially like a year and a half <laughs> since that since people were so elated to be at the SEC championship game and now it feels like Ugh, SEC championship again wake me up when we get to when we get to a playoff game again and I think part of that is because and this is this is where we're going here with this is that 2017 season and it was beautiful like it was beautiful and it was not just it was it was a combination of a lot of things of a combination of a great uh, 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 the, the players you loved under Rick and uh, the and all like this new oncoming juggernaut that smart was recruiting so you had like beloved young old players and exciting young players uh, you had a road game at Notre Dame you had the revenge tour against all of these other uh, Tennessee and all these teams you got to wipe out and then you get the SEC championship game in Atlanta and you get all this like kind of and it's a it's a wonderful game and so on and I feel like when a season like that happens when you don't win a championship and we may remember how that didn't happen everything else can't help but be downhill until you win a championship right like fan expectations are always things have to keep getting this kind of the America problem right things as they are are never good enough you always have to get better and bigger and stronger or so on and I think that season has set a level of expectation that even the greatest coach in the world which I think Kirby Smart's one of the best coaches in college football it's almost an impossible standard to live up to yeah that's probably true I mean it it wasn't just winning the SEC championship you also had in the the Rose Bowl of course which I'm still upset that even though I live in California I miss that game that's a long story that is one of the greatest victories any college football team has ever had that overtime win over Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl you know, things like that, you know, are just you're you're not going to reach that peak <laughs> in anything other than a championship game ever again, I don't think. So you were at the national championship game. Now, I was fortunate because I was press. So I got yeah. in four hours early, which because I suspected it might be an issue for a lot of people. And it was because remember, it was raining, it was freezing, it was terrible. Uh, and Trump was there. What, what was your experience like at that game? Well, you know, because we missed the Rose Bowl, ironically, because we had family visiting from Georgia who were not football fans, we had to go to the national championship game. So, you know, we flew back to Georgia, and uh, we both still have family there, my wife and I. Um, But we sat in the San Francisco airport trying to on StubHub trying to decide whether we're really going to spend that kind of money on tickets. (laughs) And then I decided we decided to do it, and then we realized what an enormous fee StubHub charges, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we still bought the tickets. So. <laughs> and as you recall, yes, the weather was horrible. It was one of those patented Atlanta ice storms. Uh, we were staying with my wife's family in Cartersville, and we felt like we had to get a hotel room in town, or we might miss the game because of the weather. So we did that, paid another fortune. <laughs> we both come down with these horrible colds. 
And, you know, we finally get to the stadium, both of us just sick as any kind of dog, in the freezing rain. And because Donald Trump was there, who I'll, I'll just tell you a secret, my wife and I are not big fans of uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh Because he was there, uh, you know, they put up, uh, you know, mags that you had to go through, and it slowed down the whole process by like two hours because they shut off one entire entrance. So after all of that, after all the money, sick as you can imagine, uh, we get into the stadium. That was all kind of cool. We actually sat in the Alabama section because the tickets were a little cheaper. And and then that game happened. Yeah. And afterwards, we had wound up for having to walk back to our Midtown Hotel. <laughs> sick, tired, disgusted. Um, and, that, and that took another couple hours. So it was it was not. <laughs> fun evening or day and I, i'm not sure we're ever going to recover financially from that <laughs> yeah yeah it was funny i actually thought it was telling la- uh, last year uh tickets for the sec chip sec championship game were a little cheaper and people like and nobody wanted to go to the sugar bowl because frankly people spent so much money on the rose bowl and the national championship game and all that came with that that i think they were like okay that's my budget for georgia football for the next three years and i get well, we, we'd already spent a small fortune going to the Notre Dame game. Oh, right, right, right. right. Which was actually obviously a whole lot of fun. Were you at that game? I was, I was, and that, it was a blast. And I love, I'm a Midwesterner originally, so to, seeing uh, all my uh, all my fr- my friends from Georgia be so warmly welcomed in that fresh-faced uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, South Bend fashion uh, made me very warm-hearted and very happy. And then the game itself was obviously great. Well, I, the funny thing is, I met uh, Mayor Buttigieg, well, two or three weeks before that game, uh, I interviewed him for New York Magazine, uh, him and a bunch of other mayors, and I dropped all sorts of big hints about how I was going to be in South Bend, you know, but he'd say, well, come on up to the box. <laughs> uh, no dice. <laughs> no, that's I, good I, I, he didn't go to school there, so maybe he doesn't yeah. have any kind of alumni privileges, but uh, no, it was, it was a blast. We actually did a road trip all the way from California to Iowa, uh, hooked up with some Iowa friends of ours who were Notre Dame fans and went to went to South Bend with them. So, but that moment when the fourth quarter began and everybody pulled out their mm-hmm. cell phones with the what was then a very new gimmick of turning on your flashlights and it became obvious that the stadium was at least forty percent Georgia fans. That was awe inspiring. Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever had a better moment at a game than that. Yeah, it, it really is. And that's and to me, as I said, as someone who's really only been a Georgia fan for 10 years or so on, that's what I love about being a Georgia football fan is there. It's, it is, I mean, I know you. This we're at an age where you're supposed to get mocked for saying this, but like, it is different. <laughs> like, it is different. There is a community of, to it. And when your team hosts Georgia, you know it. I'm going to see them play uh, uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be at the Vanderbilt game for over Labor Day. Yeah. And like, the place is going to be 80% Georgia fans. Could be. And plus, on top of everything else, we've got Uga. Yes, yes. Barely. We barely have Uga after the bowl game. That got a little well, hairy there for a second. Have you met Uga yet? Uh, I've seen Aga a few times. I've seen him. I've seen him around. It's funny because <laughs> this is actually kind of funny. I did not realize this until I got here, but there are also like backup Uggas 
for <laughs> there, yeah. are, there are backup August. There's, there's, if you look, I bought a program, not this year, but the year before, uh, there was a picture of me and my family in like some sort of, it was, it was like a promotional thing for the university. And it's just like a picture of us, like pulling our children and Ugga in a wagon behind us, but it was not the real Ugga. And I'll have you know, I let that dog know that I was disappointed in his impersonation. He was an imposter and I screamed at him and he didn't care. Um, well, it's kind of like, you know, a monarchy or something. You, yeah. you have to have backup augas because you can't be without one. Yes, even exactly. Even second. They're like so – they're like, the, yeah, they're like the Saddam Hussein impersonators to make sure that if they kind of get taken out, or like, isn't that isn't there wasn't there a Richard Dreyfus comedy from uh, the from years back that yeah. was a, about that idea? Um, oh, it, it, I met. I have I have a quick story about meeting Ugo. Yes, my wife and I went to a uh, reception in Washington for Georgia alums, and Ugo flew up and was there, and we're having our picture taken with him, of course. And my wife is in a nice little red and black sundress, uh, teetering on these long heels, trying to balance herself next to Ugga. And somebody came over and said, wait just a minute. And they handed Ugga a bacon-wrapped shrimp from a past hors d'oeuvre tray and said, let Ugga enjoy his shrimp first. <laughs> before we." But we got the picture taken, and that, that Christmas uh, we photoshopped in a Christmas tree, and that was our Christmas card, was us with Ugga. <laughs> That is, yeah, that, that is definitely one of those moments where we're like, oh, this is obviously going to be our Christmas card this year. Okay, is here. Um, so, come on, I want to talk just a little bit. I don't want to get, uh, people love it on this podcast when I get political. So, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go too much down the rabbit hole. But I'm curious, you and I were kind of emailing back and forth after I wrote a piece for New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago that was ostensibly about Dabo Sweeney, but I, uh, and certainly Clemson fans saw it exclusively as Dabo Sweeney. Uh, but for me, I, it was more kind of a college football curtain raiser for the season and look how to me Sweeney I think obviously has tons of issues but I think he's kind of the avatar for a lot of the issues of college football and it was weird for me that like South Carolina fans or even some Georgia fans would like send the piece out and be like aha see Clemson stinks they're terrible take that your coach is horrible and I'm like well for what it's worth if you're a fan of college football, your coach is probably very similar to this. Dabo's just a little bit better at it than than yeah. yours is, and and I'm curious. What I, I one of the things the lines I put in that is that like I love obviously I love college football. I do. I'm on a college football podcast. I write about college football all the time. But you know I do find that uh, every year, particularly as there's a more and more of an explosion of money in the game, I do find some ethical quandaries sometimes of whether whether uh, whether I can support this. What not not so I, whether supported but like you have to do that calculus with yourself a little bit of like yeah. how much am i willing to take how much am i willing to support you've uh, been a fan of uh, a hardcore fan of college football longer than i have do you run into that issue at times oh yeah absolutely i mean it's one of the good things about getting to be old is that you can convince yourself each year you know that well i'm only going to follow this sport for a while before they haul me off to you know the 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 rest home <laughs> and you know and i'll start worrying more about my own cognitive decline than that of football players and my own finances rather than whether players get compensated so i sort of make seriously i make a deal with myself every year well i'm going to i'm going to be a fan one more year and then maybe i'll stop uh it hasn't happened yet but it it of course yes i think we all anybody that's really paying attention uh, has to have some concerns. I'm less ethically challenged about the money than I am about the uh, head injury problem, which, you know, can really affect lives uh, more than just the pocketbook. 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to buy the hype anymore. Uh, it really is. I still love the game. I love the university of Georgia and I'll probably always support it, but you know, the game's got to change. It really does. I, I wonder if there's a parallel too in the idea of listen, I didn't think about this stuff when I was growing up and watching Mike White and uh, John Makovic coach Illinois football. I didn't think about this then. And on one hand, that was because I was younger and we didn't have as many voices kind of like amplify these issues of whether players should be paid or not and, and kind of head issues. But also, like to me, I, the reason I bring up the money idea is it becomes. I mean, it, it, there's there's been such an explosion of money yeah. over, over the last, like, five or ten years that, to me, if I could, like, tell myself before, you know what? These kids are getting scholarships, and they and that and it is not nothing. I think that that sometimes when you're for for playing paying players, people act they, they use the straw man argument of like, well, you're acting like they don't get anything at all. They get a scholarship. A scholarship is something. I'm not don't mean to imply that a scholarship is not like an important thing and a valuable thing. But the idea, particularly in the time where. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's different though when games are occasionally on local television or ESPN Plus from back in the day or ESPN uh, uh, Six or whatever the, the things were. Now, like they're paying billions of dollars for six games, and 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 the assistant coaches are making so much. Like as I wrote in the piece, Clemson has three assistant coaches making more than a million dollars. Like at that point, when that's happening, it just it it feels almost grotesque, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I stopped being a, a pro sports fan for the most part uh, because the salaries had gotten to the point to where I just couldn't relate to these people anymore. Uh, it, it Literally, I could not comprehend the amount of money they were being paid. And the same things happened with coaches uh, at the college level in basketball and in football. I mean, I can remember when I was in Athens driving by Vince Dooley's house, which I think the university bought for him thinking, boy, this is awfully sweet. Oh, you got to be kidding me now. That would be <laughs> sofa cushion money for Kirby Smart or really for any of these uh, major college coaches and increasingly for their assistants. So, yeah, your piece was spot on for, you know, Dabo to be sanctimonious about players getting a little bit of the money that they generate is just is really kind of disgusting. I Fortunately, I haven't heard Kirby Smart sounding that way. Maybe that's what he thinks, too. But he's been smart enough to hide it if he does. Yeah, I, I, I suspect almost all. That's what's been surprising. And we'll close on this. But, like, you know, for me, uh, there it doesn't seem to be a John Calipari of college football. And I don't mean to act like John Calipari is just some awesome dude. But, like, clearly he's decided that the way he's going to succeed as a coach is to be relating to players and making things better for players. And listen, I think that I don't think that's entirely altruistic, but I, but it's surprising to me that there's not like you'd see uh, that. That's what makes me think that Dabo is actually just the one that's outspoken about this as opposed to, uh, to the one that did that, uh, a, a outlier opinion. But anyway, this was my last question before we get, before I ask you about Denmark, cause I want to know if we should buy it. Um, do you think uh, I get uh, this is a big thing in sports this is actually actually going on with my old site Deadspin uh, right now of the idea of separating politics from sports and I understand the inclination to do that I covered the Republican National Convention in 2016 for Bloomberg and uh, at the end of that convention I was like my god I need to watch a baseball game so badly right now <laughs> I, need a, I need sports I need something simple I need to get away from this I need escapism so I understand the idea of sports 
sports being something that's separate from the world, from the angry, uh, increasingly despairing world uh, that surrounds it. But for me, it seems going back to like the ethical idea, the moral idea, or even the journalistic idea, the idea to pretend that everything that you do in sports, whether you go to a game, uh, never minding standing for the anthem, but like buying a ticket. How did you get there? Did you take public transportation? Were you on the freeway? Uh, what are the sponsors at your games? Uh, everything you do in the world is a political act, and that includes being a sports fan. So I'm curious, as someone that works in the world of politics and obviously has had a long connection with sports, do you are you able, have you ever ever been able to make that uh, that separation is does it make it harder uh the more you learn how the sausage is made are you able to kind of separate that well i sort of do but but here's why for me college football specifically georgia football is my way of connecting with people back home i don't live there anymore uh you know who don't agree with me on much of anything when it comes to politics or religion (laughs) right uh, but they're my people, you know, we're from the same stock. We've come from the same places and I can, I can actually get along with them just fine. As long as we're talking college football, it's sort of what, uh, I think Jews from Eastern Europe, uh, call finding your Lundsman. You know, it's people from the, the same old village back in Latvia or wherever. And it, it's, it, it's important emotionally to me to have that connection that transcends uh, differences of opinion on, you know, maybe the stuff that really matters in life, but that, yeah, it isn't everything. So I do try to keep that as separate as I possibly can, but you're right. The world is crowding in on football and a lot of our illusions about its innocence, uh, you know, aren't, aren't really true. So are you going to make it back for a game this year? Yeah, we're planning to go to the Notre Dame game. Of course. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that, that week is going to be nuts. That same, uh, those same friends from Iowa that we went to South Bend with are going to come down to Georgia so we can show them what a real football stadium looks like, you know, and, and treat them to some greasy food. So uh, I'm very excited about about being able to go to that game, and we only usually make it to one or two a year, so it's it's a big deal. Yeah, I, we have we have cleared out. Uh, I, I live right in Five Points. We live within walking distance of, uh, yeah. of both the basketball stadium and the football stadium. Football stadium is a little bit longer, but just a little. And uh, we have cleared out two days on each side of that weekend. <laughs> that weekend is going to be absolutely. It's going to be a night game. Game day is going to be here. It's it's going to be absolutely lunatic. Absolutely, I can't. I can't wait. Okay, last question. I have to tell you, you know more about politics than me and, and global issues. Should we buy Denmark? We should buy Denmark, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good, good. Uh, have you been to Denmark? I've never been to Denmark, but like, it's got to be better than here right now. <laughs> well, it was a long time ago when I went to Denmark, but i got to tell you, um, I spent a day or two in Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, and hey, this is going to sound really strange. Do you like hot dogs? I mean, what's more American than hot dogs? Yeah, of course. The Danes make the best hot dogs on the planet, without any question. I must have eaten about eight of them in Tivoli Gardens. Uh, so, you know, I think they belong with us. I, you know, I, I, I'm fine with their, uh, you know, political system, uh, their, uh, their safety net. There are a lot of things about Denmark that I really do like. I don't like hot weather. It doesn't get hot there. <laughs> All right. Well, this is so, great. I, we think I we've solved it right here. We get Greenland in the bargain. That's fine. I mean, with global, 
climate change the way it's going, that's an awfully big beach. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. I think everything's about to be an awfully big beach here here pretty soon. Um, uh, Ed Kilgore, by all means, thank you for coming on for our Spotlight series. Uh, this was very fun. You are here to for required to uh, let me know when you are here for the Notre Dame game. I'm hosting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, we're we're going to have to have like a shindig with a number of people that are coming in because I'm very, very excited to have you out here. Right. Thank you so much, Will. Of course. Thanks Thanks for having me. Read Ed Kilgore all over uh, New York Magazine. Follow him on Twitter at Ed underscore Kilgore, K-I-L-G-O-R-E. Uh, this is our last show until our big SEC preview, so I hope you've enjoyed my little Spotlight Series fun stuff this week. And now uh, I'll let Scott take you home. Uh, go dogs. And thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Ed for taking time to share his love of the Georgia Bulldogs with Will for the Spotlight Series show. The countdown to the 2019 season is almost complete, and Will, Tony, and I will be back this week with our Georgia Vanderbilt preview show. So make sure you're subscribed to our show via Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Also, the link to our college football pick'em contest will be linked in the show notes of this episode. Get registered so you can try and win the pool where we'll have some nice prizes going to the season-long winner. And that's it. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on campus very soon. And as always, go dogs. Go dogs.